Greetings to all our listeners. Today, our guest is eminent constitutional economist, Dr. Shruti Rajagopalan. Shruti is a senior research fellow at the Mercator Center at George Mason University and a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at the New York University School of Law. Before joining the Mercator Center, she was an associate professor of economics at State University of New York Purchase College. Her research interests include law and economics, public choice theory, and constitutional economics. I'm delighted that she could make time to be with us today. Welcome, Shruti. Hi, Parv. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. Shruti, there are multiple methodological approaches to legal analyses, uh, law and philosophy, feminist legal theory, etc., etc. But one of your major areas of research is law and economics. Now, to a layman, the two are seemingly different subjects with distinct assumptions and applications. At best and at most, one can associate uh, economic logic with commercial laws, but as we'll discuss, most of your work has actually been to apply economic analysis to public law. And that's quite interesting given most of us think there's no connection between the two. While we'll discuss that in depth, uh, can you tell us something about this separate standalone discipline called law and economics, how it operates and what drove you to it? Actually, if I think about it, law and economics is really two separate branches, okay? Uh, one branch is trying to understand the influence of the legal system on the working of the economic system, right? So it is there's a certain set of institutional rules or an institutional framework, and how does that affect the economy? So how does labor law affect labor markets, right? Or how do property rights affect externalities and, you know, allocation of resources and so on? So... It's always within a given institutional framework, and there you can get more specific and talk about, you know, property law or labor law or, you know, a big part of this kind of law in, and economics was antitrust law, which is competition law. But the subject of analysis very much is the economy. Uh, and this is really associated with Rohner Post mainly starting with, you know, his work in 1959, the SCC paper, 1960, you know, the problem of uh, social cost. So this is where that's coming from. The second branch within law and economics uh, is really what we call economic analysis of the law. And this branch is uh, also what we call the Posnerian branch of law and economics, because Richard Posner uh, is, you know, known to be the modern day founder of that. So what the Posnerian branch really does is it uses economics as a, as a method of inquiry, right? We take all the standard assumptions which are within the toolkit of economics, which is, you know, uh, individuals are rational, you know, self-interested and so on. So you have a, you know, basic toolkit of assumptions and then you apply those assumptions to understand why a legal rule may exist or why a legal rule emerged in a particular way or why it works in a particular way and so on and so forth. So these are broadly, you know, uh, the two branches of the larger discipline of what we call law and economics. Now within this, you can have a, a further sub-categorization, right? Uh, you can either have positive analysis or normative analysis. Now, incidentally, both you know, Ronald Coase's work and Richard Posner's work predominantly is in the positive analysis framework. But you can also have a normative element to both law and economics and economic analysis of law. So for instance, if you think about, you know, very basic antitrust law or competition law, you see that 
perfect competition is used as the normative standard against which all other kinds of market competition are judged, whether it's a duopoly or a monopoly or an oligopoly. And therefore, these market behaviors by these other kinds of you know, competitive uh, firms will be judged against the sta normative standard of perfect competition and therefore corrected, right? So if you know the monopoly price is not the same as the perfectly competitive price, that's what we need to correct. And it could be above or below, right? It could be predatory pricing, which means you're, you're below what is you know, your perfectly competitive market price, or uh, you could be charging a monopoly markup. Uh, similarly, you know, you talked about the, the various critiques that you could have, like you could have a feminist critique, you could have a Marxist critique, you have all these different ways of critiquing law, right? Even within economics, you could have the normative part of law and economics, which is really critiquing or correcting particular laws using economic analysis, right? Uh, and this also starts overlapping, you know, just like competition policy, it starts overlapping in the area of more policy frameworks. So this is something like, you know, you, you study rent control law, you understand the unintended consequences of rent control law. And then you start critiquing rent control law from the point of view of the final goal, which is increasing housing supply or something like that, against which the rent control law doesn't quite hold up in the critique because you have a particular normative element or a normative goal that you need to hit. And what drove you to law in economics? You know, I wish there was some very exciting story to it. Uh, I did my undergraduate in economics at Delhi University. I had, uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer, you know, so I did take all these, all the five-year law schools were just, you know, starting, I think, NUJS was just starting when I was finishing up high school, you know, uh, national law school where you are was already pretty well established. So those schools were already there, but another very standard way of, you know, becoming a lawyer was to do a three-year degree and then to do an LLB. And I got into uh, Hansraj College at Delhi University, uh, which was known to have an excellent economics department, even in those days. And, you know, those were the choices. And, and I, I went in that direction. And uh, it's hard to really explain why, except, you know, I mean, if, if NUJS and Nalsar and all these schools had been uh, as well established in those days as they are today, when I was applying to them, then, you know, probably they would have been very attractive. But that, at that time, we just didn't know that much about these schools. You know, on the other hand, Hansraj economics program was just very prominent, quite well known. So that was the choice I made. I had an exceptional set of teachers uh, in the program, uh, most notably, uh, you know, Professor Anil Kokradi, who taught me microeconomics. Um, his class was, I mean, he was sort of, you know, one of those magical things. Once you understand the world from a particular way of thinking, which in this case was the economic point of view, it was very difficult to unsee the world that way, you know, and then once I really got into it, I just had a deep love for economics. I had uh, an excellent, you know, public economics professor who taught me public economics and public finance called uh, Professor Alka Kakkar. So we had like a really nice environment uh, going on. Delhi School of Economics was just a hop skip away. So, you know, anytime Delhi School also had a fantastic canteen, right? So you'd be hanging around drinking tea or eating dosa or something. And everyone who is hanging around you 
is doing their masters in economics and they're all talking about economics so i came very much from a place where everyone was constantly talking about economics and it, it, you know you just kind of learn by osmosis uh, i went on to you know a uh, faculty of law uh, at delhi university immediately after and very early in my faculty of law career i figured out that law doesn't have an analytical framework it's a very exciting area of you know study uh, but it doesn't bring with it its own analytical framework and i found the economics analytical framework extremely powerful so i started digging into you know who's doing law and economics what's going on because i kept thinking about the problems as an economist and at that time uh, professor tc anand was teaching a law and economics graduate level course at delhi school of economics and so i asked him if i could audit the class and i sat in and that was really my first sort of like formal you know someone is telling me what to read and who are the scholars in this discipline and how to go about it uh, and he and jaiveer singh were doing some very interesting work at that time on environmental law because you know all this all the pils all your mc mehta versus union of india pils were coming out at that time and you know the judiciary was taking a keen interest in environmental regulation so they were doing you know their own research on that all this was very exciting it was happening right you know outside our homes right like like these guys were able to explain why you have long lines outside cng stations and you know what are the judges doing right versus wrong so it was a a, a great time uh, simultaneously you know a few years before that i had interned at the center for civil society which is where i got introduced to hayek you know who is i mean he's done many many things he's done monetary theory calculation debate but the later part of his career was just a lot of law and economics you know all your law legislation and liberty the three volumes the constitution of liberty i think the road to serfdom has a lot of great you know institutional economic analysis right uh, so i read those books they were a big influence uh, similarly at ccs i discovered james buchanan and gordon tullock you know who are the public choice school which is different than the law and economics school and we can talk about that a little bit but they were very much you know this was the kind of stuff i was reading uh so at the end of this i think everything just nudged me in a particular direction i found it exciting and and then you know each deeper dive into that area just you know trapped me deeper and i've never left which brings me to a related question which is that i think one can see early glimmerings of law and economics uh, in the works of adam smith and even david ricardo and i think later hayek as you rightly pointed out uh but law and economics becomes a specialized discipline much later um so how has its uh, evolution taken place over the years this is a great question you know it's difficult to say so in one sense you're right you can see a lot of the stuff we talk about in modern day law and economics and not just law and economics you know there's some modern day behavioral economic stuff which you can trace back to adam smith um so yes i mean smith was just such a broad thinker and wrote about what he was seeing in society and social cooperation so broadly that you can see glimmers of this going back i would say the kind of coarsian analysis you are seeing in law and economics i think that starts with bentham and mill you know they are very very clear precursors uh because they are directly talking about these subjects right and they are thinking about it so the, the utilitarian framework which is hugely borrowed in externality economics 
uh, that you know you you can trace that quite clearly to to Bentham and Mill. Um, I has a great book on this actually written by Stephen Medema. He's a historian of thought, especially in the area of you know this kind of course and externality economics. And the Hesitant Hand is a great book to trace this kind of history. You know, so you know, let's talk about Bentham Mill, Sidgwick, right? Um, uh, Pigou, and then up to you know the Kosian critique of Pigou and those guys. Typically, in an area like law and economics, it's not like nobody could have done rent control analysis, you know, before the 60s and 70s or something like that, right? All that was going on. It's not like no one did institutional analysis. It's just, it wasn't recognized as a separate discipline. So if you read Peter Betke's, you know, mainline economics, you see that what course is doing, you know, which is basically really good economics, right? Which is, we need to take it, take the institutional framework into account, the rules of the game into account before we start studying what kind of interactions and patterns emerge in the economy. This it has a very strong tradition in what Peter Betke calls mainline economics, going all the way back to Adam Smith. What is new is, and the reason we trace the modern law in economics back to course is the FCC paper and the problem of you know, social cost, these two papers together quite dramatically changed how economists were thinking about legal institutions, right? And I think that's, that's the reason. So everyone in modern day law and economics immediately can trace their journey back to this point. Just like in industrial organization, right? And that literature, everyone can trace back to Coase's 1937 paper, right? It's, it's such a clean line. So I think it's more that uh, than anything else. It's not like, you know, you can't find glimmers of Posnerian economics. Like if you look at Adam Smith, again, he's talking about the emergence of uh, common law, right? He's talking about how you have these private institutions where um, uh, judges are competing, right, for cases. This is the time in England uh, when judges are still competing for cases because they're paid fees to look at, you know, each case. And you have these independent reporters reporting these cases. You don't have like this highly centralized monolithic uh, legal structure. And you can see glimmers of, you know, very Posnerian analysis of how these things are emerging, even in Adam Smith. Uh, but the modern day style of, you know, people doing this analysis very much goes back to Richard Posner, Gary Becker. Those are the guys who really took off in this area of economics where they try and explain legal rules from an economic point of view as if the emergence of these rules were rational, right? So, so you know, homo economicus applied to everything. So rational self-interested individuals and, you know, how they behave and then the resulting patterns from it. So you can trace that line quite clearly. You know, there's some very exciting stuff happening in Chicago at that time. So you have Aaron Director, you have, you know, uh, Gary Becker, you have George Stigler, you have Milton Friedman. They're all kind of this incredible cohort. And uh, Stigler really popularized Coase's analysis and dubbed it the Coase theorem in his book. Coase never called his result a theorem, right? Uh, and I think that, again, really helped because once you can put something in like principle and intermediate economics books and dub it a theorem, then immediately it makes its way into students and classrooms very, very quickly. 
So I think that was another interesting uh, uh, thing that happened. You, you're absolutely right, actually. And I also think that you often associate uh, law and economics with the Chicago School of Economics, right? Because uh, I think in part because the law and economics method takes as its starting point the proposition that individuals are more self-interested than uh, socially interested, but in part also because its most prominent scholars have been people like Coase and Posner and Becker, all prominent uh, Chicago economists. So would it be correct to necessarily equate the method of law and economics with the political philosophy that most of its proponents profess? Not really. You know, I mean, you're absolutely right that there's a very strong association with Chicago. Both Coase and Posner are from, you know, uh, Chicago. And there are a lot of people, both in the economics department and the law school who are doing this work. Uh, so you're, you're right in that. Uh, but I think, you know, Chicago is not new in saying that individuals are rational and self-interested. That is the that is the, the foundational assumption of any economics, right? So you could be in Timbuktu, right? You could be doing economics in, in the Arctic Circle if there is a university that does it. You could be doing it in Chicago. You could be doing it anywhere. If you are a neoclassical economist, this is your first assumption, right? Individuals are rational, self-interested. Uh, so in that sense, I don't think, you know, the, the method that they were using is very Chicago in one sense. Actually, if you look at Ronald Coase's work, he wrote the FCC paper when he was in uh, Virginia. And there was this fantastic group in Virginia, right? So Buchanan is there, Tulloch is there, Ronald Coase is there actually at that time. And those guys are doing something quite fascinating, which is trying to understand the market process in integration with the political process. Right, and incidentally, course goes in a particular direction, and he does it with the legal process. So this is when Taluk is working very much on politics. Buchanan is working on politics, constitutions, and public finance. Right, so there's something very magical happening. So if, in fact, I would go as far as saying that, you know, a lot of the Coasian analysis is not even Chicago School. Chicago School picks it up and runs with it. Right, but but if you really start tracing the history of the Coasian analysis, you would actually trace it to the Virginia political economy school even more closely. Um, so I don't think it's unique to that. Uh, uh, your question about the method, can it be delineated from the ideological underpinnings? I think so. You know, uh, there's a lot of law and economics that I read. Uh, which is ideologically quite neutral or, you know, can even be left-leaning. I think ideology comes in a lot in two ways, right? One is the choice of topic. So a lot of, you know, uh, Chicago School economists were working on competition policy and antitrust. So a lot of the early, you know, law and economics, economic analysis of the law ended up being in that area. Uh, but I think, you know, you have plenty of law and economists, modern day law and economists, who are working on, say, criminal law and economics, uh, which is quite clearly, I mean, if you, I, I think it's ideologically neutral, but if you had to label it, it would be quite left-leaning, because they're talking about, you know, the unintended consequences of certain laws and prison overcrowding, or, you know, the kind of race profile that you get uh, when, when these kinds of laws are implemented and, and so on. So I don't think the method necessarily comes with a particular ideological leaning. I think ideological leaning plays 
a role in the topic that is chosen. And again, now the second caveat is if you're doing normative law in economics, then of course your ideological underpinnings are going to come in in a much more pronounced way, you know, in a way that it doesn't come in in, in positive analysis. So I, I think that would be my answer to that. And you know, now thankfully, you have law and economics done in virtually every, you know, economics department in in the United States, certainly, and most in the world, and and the same for uh, you know most law departments. Um, even in India now, like when I was growing up, law people would just like I would say law and economics when I was in college or even in law school, and they would just like look at me like I was a strange person. Uh, now I think virtually every law school in India has at least a small module in law and economics. Everyone's introduced to the basics, you know, your your big Richard Posner book of economic analysis of law. You know, everyone's kind of a little bit clued in into those things. So I think you know things are certainly uh, changing in that regard. I don't think this is just a Chicago school thing anymore. So unlike India, uh, law and economics has been and continues to be uh, very popular uh, and robust in the American legal tradition. Uh, and uh, there are scholars who have extended economic analysis to family law, you know, matters of marriage, divorce and adoption, etc. Areas one would not imagine economic analysis belongs. And uh, a standard uh, intuitive response to that uh, has been that there are certain spheres of action where economic considerations do not enter. Though my own sense is that in most cases it does, uh, of course not in all cases, but with sufficient frequency for the larger model to hold. Uh, but how do you respond to this criticism this, that these assumptions may not hold true in certain spheres of uh, human action and therefore in certain spheres of law? This is a really good question, okay? And there is, this also goes back to the split I'm talking about, you know, the Cosian versus the Posnerian uh, study. Or even in this sense, you know, Cosian versus a Beckerian version, right? So within Chicago, and, you know, in the, I would say in the late 50s and 60s, and some of this also has to do with the, with the founding of the public choice movement, there was a venturing out of economists using the economics toolkit to study non-market behavior, right? So until then, you were only using economics to study market behavior. And that's very Cosian, right? Like you look at the economy using the scaffolding of the law as you know the starting point or given particular institutional rules or legal rules. Uh, but taking the economics toolkit outside of market behavior, the two areas uh, you know, which come to mind immediately, one is uh, law and economics and the other is public choice, which is the economic analysis of politics. Here, what is really going on is one is not saying so much that these areas are the same as the economy. No one is saying that the family is the same as the economy. No one is saying, you know, the law is the same as the economy or, you know, constitutional rules are the same as the economy. That's really not what the claim is. The claim is one of behavioral symmetry, Okay that the people, the individuals in question are the same everywhere, right? So whether you're an individual buying apples and oranges or whether you're an individual who is, you know, wearing the robes of a judge and pronouncing decisions in a courtroom or whether you're an individual who's in the public domain as a bureaucrat or a politician or as a voter, 
we can treat you the same, right, as, as analysts. And what does that mean? It means that you are self-interested, you're rational, right? And what does that really mean? It means you account for costs and benefits when you're making these decisions. And uh, you're self-interested in the sense that in an exchange, you would want to do better for yourself than for the other party. This is not to say you are selfish, that is a, that's different, or that you're greedy, okay? Those are very normatively loaded terms. This is just a fundamental assumption that we make about human behavior, right? So the claim that Gary Becker is making when he takes economic analysis into the family or Mises, you know, Ludwig von Mises did it before Gary Becker in uh, human action, um, or the claim that, you know, Buchanan and Talak are making when they, when they take the analysis into politics uh, is not that, oh, all human beings are these greedy, awful, you know, isolated, you know, selfish people. But still, that the unit of analysis is the individual. It's not the institution. So, you know, there's methodological individualism, which is another foundational to part of the toolkit of economics, which you're now taking to non-market behavior. And the second of behavioral symmetry, which is we're going to treat all individuals the same, whether they are bureaucrats or politicians or whatever, right? I think that is the incredible innovation that was made, right? And to that extent, I'm fully on board, right? I do think human beings are the same everywhere. I don't think that just because you're wearing, you know, robes of a judge, you are suddenly able to transcend the fundamental characteristics of your humanness, right? Uh, now, basically, what they're saying is incentives matter and human beings respond to incentives. So then the question becomes, what are the incentives of a judge? Right. So depending on the institutional context, the, some of the institutions of a judge are I don't want my judgments to be overturned in an appeal or I want to make sure I get promoted. Or if you're in a system that elects its judges versus appointing its judges, you want to get reelected. Right. Or if you're in the Indian scenario, you want to make sure you get a post judicial appointment, post retirement appointment. Right. Uh, so it's just, what are your incentives? I mean, saying that judges are not human, I think, I mean, one, it's just plain wrong. Uh, but I think it also uh, makes it difficult to analyze them in any sensible way. Uh, other people who've studied the non-market context, you know, this is the Bloomington School, this is Eleanor Ostrom and, you know, Vincent Ostrom. They were also political scientists, but they were looking at different kinds of questions and non-market behavior, which is, you know, how do you govern the commons? which are not exactly within, you know, your standard market system and market analysis. Uh, you have, of course, the public choice guys. Uh, you have, you know, people like Henry Manny who are, you know, trying to set up these, you know, law and economics programs in other areas, Aaron Director, you know, they were like sort of entrepreneurs in, in propelling the law and economics movement. You have Gary Becker, who is doing this for criminal uh, behavior and for, you know, family law and things like that. Um, uh, and of course, you have, you know, uh, Richard Posner and uh, uh, who's doing it for, you know, economic analysis of law. So that's, and if you notice, they're all working in similar decades. Many people have called this, you know, economic imperialism, <laughs> which is economics tries to study everything, you know, not just the economy, but everything in addition to the economy. So there is some truth to that. And the Chicago School is very much associated with this kind of economic imperialism. But I think it's not just that. I think it's a way of thinking about the world and, and how you think about human beings and fundamental assumptions. 
Shruti, you mentioned about the venturing out of economics in the non-market sphere. Now, law and economics has a pretty robust application in public law, largely through the area called public choice and public choice theory, uh, which is also your area of interest. Can you tell us something about the public choice theory? Yes. So, you know, I mean, there's a great segue from what we were just discussing. So, you know, there's this movement to start applying the economics toolkit to non-market behavior, right? And that really begins with James Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, you know, uh, uh, there's there's some parallel movements going on. There's the Rochester School where you have like William Riker and those guys writing. Uh, so the first set of, you know, kind of work on this really started, uh, you know, looking at voting behavior, right? And some background is useful here. Until that time, everyone thought that people are self-interested when you are operating within the marketplace, right? Of course, you know, all your models of competitive behavior, you know, people buying price competition, monopolistic behavior, all this is based on, you know, the, the toolkit that individuals are rational, self-interested and so on. But the assumption, especially in the area of political science, was that the moment these people go into government, they are now public interested, publicly interested, right? Or public spirited. That's a, that's a better way of putting it. So the same person, when they go to the marketplace, they're going to be haggling with their local grocer. They're going to make sure they get their best bang for their buck and the most apples at the highest quality at the lowest price. But when they go to the voting booth, now they are suddenly thinking about, you know, the world and world peace and, you know, their neighbors and, you know, all, all those sorts of things. Similarly, when politicians get elected or bureaucrats get elected, right? The same politician when he goes, you know, when he's out and about and he's, you know, filling his car uh, with gas or something, he's self-interested. But the moment he takes, you know, walks into the building and, and sits in his office, right, whether it's North Block, South Block, Udyog Bhavan, right, now they are publicly interested, right, public spirited. So this used to be the way political science treated, you know, individual behavior, if at all they treated it. Uh, you know, in any analytical way. And I think the big innovation of public choice was to say, hey, that, you know, is unrealistic, which is why, you know, Buchanan often dubs public choice as politics without romance, right? Uh, and it's not because we think all politics is bad or broken or something like that. It's simply you are taking away that romance that people are going to automatically be assumed to be public interest public spirited or publicly interested the moment take, they take office. They are still going to be human, right? Which means they are self-interested. Uh, so that was kind of the point of view uh, from where they came. So the initial models on this are very much about voting, right? About how is it rational for you know, individuals to vote? Is it rational for individuals to learn much about voting? So you know, the whole idea that voting is irrational because the benefits outweigh the costs, right? The benefit which in this case is your uh, an individual voter's chance of changing the outcome uh, in, a, in a large uh, electoral uh, process is so small, but the amount of effort they need to put in to make sure that they study and you know, they look at all the candidates and they understand what's going on in their polity, uh, the informational demands are so high that it is rational for every voter to be ignorant. And it is also rational for voters, in fact, just not to bother to vote. Right. 
so your early models were about this and the early models were also about voting behavior and the emergent patterns you know your median voter theorem right uh, or you know you have uh, bill rikers you know minimum winning coalition these sorts of models that are coming about uh, in this area the very interesting point of view that james buchanan brings uh, and this is really through the calculus of consent before the calculus of consent came out buchanan was really a public finance uh, economist right so he is looking at taxation right he is looking at uh, how we decide fiscal outlays uh, politically and as a society as a group right and now you know in budgetary politics you're really going to get a lot of this public choice behavior right so there are there are multiple elements to it which is you know how we tax whom we tax how we spend there's also an intergenerational aspect to it which is you know it's easier uh, for politicians to tax people uh, who are not yet born or you know bear taxes well into the future right as opposed and and pass on all the benefits or the subsidies or the welfare and entitlements today so a lot of this early work you know by james buchanan and dick wagner these guys were writing about ricardian equivalence right uh, there's a great book by uh, you know them called democracy in deficit which is really a uh, response to john maynard keynes and his arguments on uh, you know this kind of fiscal uh, policy uh, tools at at one's disposal so a lot of the early work is on public finance and public finance really nudges buchanan in the area of what he eventually you know coined the term as constitutional political economy but he started thinking about what kind of constraints are required uh, on political actors to make sure that you know you don't get perverse outcomes when you have rational you know self-interested people in political office right so that's the normative part of of uh, constitutional economics or constitutional political economy the positive part of constitutional you know economics is uh what are the rules of the game and how the rules of the game came about right so this is really what they're looking at so there's a big literature in um political science and in constitutional law on what is that constitutional founding moment right so everyone who looks at comparative constitutions or even you know your work like the, you know bruce ackerman and so on who are looking at the founding moment right uh they are really trying to understand how the rules of the game came about right and a lot of that emphasis is on history it is on context it is on you know is this a revolution right those kinds of of themes and discussions and what buchanan and talak really bring to the table in the in the calculus of consent uh it's quite extraordinary they use the same tools of you know rational choice except now the the individuals who are in the group are trying to rationally choose constitutional rules right so what are the rules of the game how would you choose rules of the game how would rational individuals choose rules of the game uh so that i think is is an incredible uh you know i i wouldn't even call it an innovation it's sort of like you know it's almost like a leap right like no one is really doing that uh vincent ostrom at the same time is talking about you know the compound republic right you have uh you know in some sense you have him looking at the tocqueville project you have uh you know uh, buchanan uh 
who is looking at the Humean, Lockean, Humean project, right? So it's really about how do we constrain the people who govern us in a society that believes in self-governance? That's the kind of big project they're looking at. But the sub part of that big project is, you know, how are constitutional rules formed? So constitutional economics is really, or constitutional political economy is, you know, how do we think about the rules of the game? How do they come about? And public choice theory is strategy within political strategies or behavior within a given set of rules, right? So if the rules of the game are, you know, my voting rules are X, right? What kinds of strategies are people going to form within that to make sure that they get the result that they want within a particular kind of polity? Uh, and that's your, you know, public choice uh, theory. So that's really the, the difference between the two, right? It's, it's, it's a question of level. It's the, it's the uh, rules of the game versus strategy within the rules of the game. My work in this was trying to look at the interaction between these two levels because constitutional amendments kind, kind of cut through this, right? So I was very interested in that. How do self-interested individuals navigate changing constitutional rules? Why do they wish to change the rules in the first place, right? Why is it not working? Are the rules flawed? Is it some other reason? And then how do you change the rules of the game using the rules of the game, right? Because the constitutional is the only document which also provides the rules to change its rules. That's not true for any other piece of law. So that's the difference between constitutional document and every other document. Uh, so I was very interested in that. I was also interested in that because I mean, the Indian constitution, by the time I started working on this, had had about 1993 amendments, right? Now we've had 105 amendments. So that's really, you know, the, the point of view that I came from. Well, that's very useful and in fact brings me to the next question, which is that you have looked at amendments to the Indian constitution, both through constitutional economics lens and public choice lens. And one of your major arguments has been that the reason for constitutional decline in India was that the formal institutions of central planning that our early government sought to put in place were fundamentally incompatible with the constitution and it is this incompatibility which led to frequent amendments to the constitution. Can you tell us something more about that work? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, you know, some of my older dissertation work, actually. You're taking me back a, a long way. Um, so there are two ways to think about the, the you know, uh, amendments. Now, I was trying to understand, you know, why is it that we amend the constitution so frequently, right? Like I said, is there a design problem? Is it something else? Now, if you're an economist, a very simple way of thinking, why does India have so many constitutional amendments versus some other country, like say the United States doesn't have as many? The simplest answer is, look at the constraints, right? It's much easier to amend the Indian constitution than it is to amend the American constitution, right? So if you, if you look at, you know, Article 368 uh, of the Indian Constitution, the rule is you need a majority of the total membership of the House uh, and a majority of not less than two-thirds present in voting, right? So it's this dual requirement that you have. Plus, of course, your president's assent and so on. And then you have some entrenched clauses for which you need half the states uh, in India to ratify. Now, if you look at the U.S. Constitution, it's not just the total membership, uh, a majority of the total membership of the House. It's two-thirds membership of the total, you know, so, so you already need a much higher majority in the US. 
plus you need three quarters of the states to ratify, which is really the, the, the crunch, right? It's very difficult to get your constitutional amendments ratified. So the US has had only about 27 amendments, right? So the simplest way of thinking about this is, why do we have so many amendments in India? Well, it's easy to amend the constitution, right? That's the procedural point of view, a simple cost benefit. Now, that still doesn't tell us anything about what was the impetus for each of those amendments, right? It tells us that given that someone wants to amend a constitution, it's much easier to do so in India than in many other you know, polities. But what was it that they wished to amend? Why is it they wish to amend it? That is not clear from this basic you know, Econ 101 analysis, right? And that's what I started digging into. So the way I got into it, frankly, I had no um, particular, let me phrase it this way. When I was in law school, I had no reason to believe that socialism was the reason for constitutional amendments. This was not something that was taught to us. This is not something which is kind of in our, you know, amendments jurisprudence or, you know, anything like that, or our constitutional law jurisprudence. I came upon this simply by studying the content of the amendments, right? So we see a very clear pattern in, say, the first three decades of, of Indian constitutional amendments. You have the government trying to do something like, you know, like a major government policy. It passes legislation to implement that policy. That legislation gets challenged. The courts strike it down, right? And when the courts strike it down as unconstitutional, instead of saying, hey, this legislation is unconstitutional, we need to reformulate the legislation, they say, oh, we need to reformulate the constitution. If you think about this, this is extremely bizarre, <laughs> okay? Now, there are many ways in which this has been described in Indian jurisprudence, right? You needed, you know, socially motivated laws or you needed, you know, a public interest laws, you know, all these different words that we use. You needed to implement, uh, uh, you know, land reform, which was for, you know, landless masses of India versus some zamindars. So there's always some very specific reason which is given, but there was no analytical framework. When I started literally, you know, so what I did is I, I kind of had like a big notebook. I started looking at each amendment act. And I said, okay, what are they amending? Then I, you know, traced it back and went to, oh, they amended this because of this case. Okay, why was this case fought? Oh, this case was fought because of this law. So now why was this law enacted, right? So I kind of did this forward and backward kind of linkage. And what I found is in about, you know, 14, at least 14 of the 44, first 44 constitutional amendments, and there are more, but I'm talking about 14 where I could find a very direct link. You have statements and policies very clearly mentioned in the planning commission five-year plan document, right? That we're going to have abolition of zamindari or something like that. And, you know, once the plan is formulated, Either the central government will enact the law or it will, you know, send, you know, if land is a state subject, it will tell the states to enact the law, right? States start enacting these laws. It gets stuck in, you know, it gets stuck in the courts. The courts send it back. Parliament, instead of abandoning the policy, amends the constitution, and then you have the next round of this. This keeps happening. 
and uh, I found that extraordinary. And the reason I was able to see the pattern is I don't think too many people had studied the first 44 amendments during socialism, like, you know, in that clean cut way. The usual mythology was Nehru was a great constitutionalist and Indira Gandhi is when, you know, the world went to hell in a handbasket. And once you start looking at the amendments, you're like, you know, Indira Gandhi amended the constitution more frequently and for more malevolent and self-interested reasons, very directly self-serving reasons. But the content and argument, right, which is forwarded for these amendments is not that different from the previous decade, right? So Indira Gandhi is also adding very socialist legislation to the ninth schedule, same as Nehru, right? So I think because I was looking at the pattern of all the amendments together, I was able to spot that this was the problem. And every time the argument was, uh, you know, that this needs to be for the greater good and the public interest and, you know, to further the socialist goals of society and so on and so forth. It was always about a, you know, typically about a positive welfare entitlement of some sort. And, and that's where I really found the path. I think it's helpful to look at amendments by looking at patterns instead of looking at individuals. So I think the important thing is to say that, look, you there's a particular framework of governance whatever was the given ideology, which is what is causing the systemic contradiction as opposed to some individuals are good and some individuals are bad. No matter which individual you put in that chair, you know, as long as you're trying to implement these policies, this is the bad outcome you're going to get, which is frequent constitutional amendments. That's what I was trying to show uh, uh, through, through that paper of my dissertation. This is, I think, uh, this is the one in constitutional, this published in constitutional political economy. And uh, I think that's a useful way to think about amendments. I think in India, we pay too much attention to individuals, whether it's prime ministers or judges or whatever. And we pay too little attention to the larger arc or pattern of what's going on. And you know, the big benefit of being an economist is we, we are trained in looking at patterns, right? It's a very basic stuff. So, so that came about. The second part coming to your ideological you know, part of that question, uh, the Indian framers were the root cause of this constitutional design flaw, right? And this is because they were very largely inspired by the Fabian, you know, system. Hayek pointed this out in the road to serfdom, that you can either get socialism, right? Which is, you know, control over the means of production and, and prices, or you can get, you know, the rule of law, which is generality, equality before the law, you know, no arbitrariness and so on and so forth. You can't get both, right? Now, there is a positive way of looking at this as opposed to normative. The positive way of looking at this is, look, if you really want to implement socialism, you need to throw this constitution out, which is, by the way, what the communists were saying for a long time, right? The communists didn't want constitutional constraints because they knew that this is a really big problem. Uh, in trying to implement the kind of, you know, huge social rehaul that they wanted. So Hayek, from a positive point of view, is just simply saying that, that these two institutions are not compatible. You can either get A or you can get B. You need to choose ex ante. If you try to implement both, you are not going to get one or the other, right? Because push comes to shove, you have to choose. And that's exactly what you see happening in India. At each point, when each single law, whether it's the Bihar land reform, 
whether it is para whether it is bank nationalization you know each one of these things when it is challenged you see right that moment when they say hey you either need to choose the policy or you need to choose the constitution at each point they choose the policy over the constitution right because they they go forward and they amend or they dump it in the ninth schedule or something like that so i think this was this is really important in that sense it's a very hierarchical project so that's the positive way to look at it now the normative way to look at this especially now that we are in the post soviet union collapse world which is not the world that the framers inherited but i have the benefit of hindsight unlike the framers of the indian constitution now i can put a normative lens on this and say hey socialism did not work not only did it cause all the problems in the economy you know all your shortages and impoverishment and so on it's also destroyed the constitution right and that's the normative perspective so the paper does both uh but you could also just simply look at this from a very positive lens and say these are two incompatible documents and there is an enormous amount of evidence to prove that i only looked at specific constitutional amendments but you can look at so much legislation right which is kind of contrary to the rule of law but it passes the constitutional test because there is a huge amount of you know public interest uh, public purpose deference right this legislative deference that the judges show right if something is in public interest and the law says uh, parliament you know says it's in public interest we believe it's in public interest there's so much stuff like that which actually does pass through you know as constitutional but which would still be against you know that that hayekian or dicean idea of rule of law so that was where uh, you know i was going with that uh another sub part of that work was just looking at the ninth schedule i mean this is one of those marvels or uh, you know <laughs> i mean one way of thinking about it is a marvel another way of thinking about this is uh, it's an abomination right uh of of constitutionalism in the indian constitution and the ninth schedule again very much comes about because you want to implement uh you know the land reform uh, movement you want to abolish zamindari that's the origins of the ninth schedule but there's a very clean public choice analysis that can follow from the moment you create the ninth schedule and what i was trying to do in that and that paper you know has been long pending actually it's been accepted in the journal of legal studies uh that paper was really looking at given the existence of the ninth schedule right it should have just ex- exploded and expanded right which kind of what happens in the beginning but at some point you know additions to the ninth schedule kind of start slowing down and you know after 95 they just stop there are no new additions to the ninth schedule so that was kind of the puzzle i was trying to resolve that you know why was this this constitutional dustbin right why was it so heavily in use initially and what were the incentives that people stopped using it later so that is very standard i mean this is like your very classic public choice you know rent seeking analysis i'm looking at political entrepreneurs who have something to gain from amending the constitution and so there's a benefit to amending the constitution but clearly the costs keep changing and as we go along further you know the procedural costs start mounting you have the basic structure doctrine which says even if something is added to the ninth schedule you know it can be reopened later so now you also have to go to the courts and convince the courts so there's all this other stuff going on right so we've in sense in the sense added additional constraints or additional hurdles 
which an economist would call cost, right? You know, expected cost. And that's the reason it starts, uh, its its use starts declining. Another part which came out of this was, uh, we talked about amendments to the constitution, but only the formal amendments, right? The Indian constitution is being amended every day, every hour by the judiciary. <laughs> and uh, that has in fact become the main way of amending the constitution. So I was trying to look at how in the initial years, a lot of the amendments were formal amendments to the text of the constitution. And then as we go along further, especially in this post Keshwanand Bharti moment and you know, post PIL, when they start diluting local standard requirements and so on, the procedural costs of approaching the bench lower, which means now it is a little bit more attractive for you know, rent seekers and political entrepreneurs to approach the judiciary because you know, it's lower cost than approaching the legislature. And you get the same thing, you, know, you get the rule change that you want. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that was talking, I mean, the background or the consequence of that is sort of, you know, the rise of the, the judiciary as this power structure, which has been talked about a lot. But I didn't really want to talk about that. I wanted to talk more about what are the mechanics uh, that are pushing this. You know, you can say that the judges are getting stronger and more important, all that stuff, but you still need petitioners to show up in court with all this stuff, right? So that's the point of view I was trying to understand. Now, who are these people? Why are they approaching the bench? right, uh, to do these things. Um, so really looking at, uh, you know, uh, constitutional amendments by interpretation, the rise of the PIL mo movement, um, you know, the increase in positive entitlements being handed out by the court, as opposed to by the legislature and so on and so forth. Uh, Shruti, there was an important point you touched upon, uh, that in our political discourse, the understanding has always been that the constitution is some sort of a guiding document and not a sacrosanct charter of liberties that should rarely be touched. And when you contrast this kind of an understanding with the understanding that the framers of say the US constitution had, it's strikingly different. Do you think it's because the Indian constitution was very much a product of its times? Uh, the American constitution was written in the shadow of John Locke and his two treatises, but the Indian constitution on the other hand came about in the historical background of John Maynard Keynes his general theory and the dominant socialist and progressive understanding at that time that societies and markets could be remodeled by active government intervention? You know, uh, this is a great question. I think it's a few things. You're absolutely right. I mean, one, of course, every constitution is a product of you know the time that it is formulated in. There's no question about that. Um, some of it is the ideas that are the dominant ideas. You're right. I think the American constitution was written, you know, in the heyday of the Scottish Enlightenment and a lot of the Enlightenment ideas, you know, found their way into the American constitutional project. The Indian constitution was written very much in the shadow of, you know, Harold Lasky and, you know, Fabian economics. And, you know, of course, the progressive movement in the United States following John Maynard Keynes and things like that. So one part is ideas. I think the other part is just the individuals themselves, right? The American constitution is written by a very small and limited group of white men who are property owning and uh, militarized in, in large parts and slave owning in large parts. Now this is important, right? The Indian constitution on the other hand uh, is written by a very diverse set of people I still don't think it has as much diversity and representation because it was also on a partially limited franchise, right? They were voted in in 1946 through the provincial 
um, assembly, uh, provincial legislative assembly elections, uh, which were fought on a limited franchise. You know, only those who pay taxes and property owning, you know, those are the only people who could vote. But even with that, it was a much broader and more diverse set of people than the American, you know, constitutionalists. So that's something to keep in mind. The second is that I think at the birth of the Indian Republic, there is a political project which is going on, which is the constitutional framing. But simultaneously, there is also a social project which is going on, right? You want emancipation of women. You want liberation of Dalits. You want rights being recognized for Adivasis and so on and so forth. Uh, you want, you know, different groups of people to coexist. So when India becomes a republic, you have a union which is being stitched together of British India and 560 plus erstwhile princely states. Right? So that's one kind of political fractionalization which needs to be pulled together. You have high degree of religious fractionalization, right? Uh, you have a high degree of caste fractionalization. You have a high degree of linguistic fractionalization. Any one of these things is enough to fracture and you know make, make the union collapse, right? In the United States, you don't have this kind of religious fractionalization and you don't have this kind of, you know, I mean, there is no question of caste fractionalization, but even the class system, which they do have at that time, people in other classes are not allowed to partake in the, in the, in the politics or the constitutional moment, right? There's something going on there. Uh, you certainly don't have linguistic fractionalization, right? And when it comes to Adivasis, the, the obvious parallel is, you know, the, the original Native Americans who have been completely, you know, uh, in, in one sense massacred, you know, not just quite literally, but also politically, they've been completely sidelined. So I don't think they're comparable in, in the nature of the political or the social project. We keep comparing them because the American constitution is like this kind of drafting template Right? Every constitution in the world wants to borrow the Bill of Rights and wants to borrow some of the procedural elements. You know, this, you know, what are the majority rules? What are your amendment rules? The American constitution is very templatized in that sense. So as a template, yes, they're comparable. But on every other margin, if we really start digging into the founding moment, there is just no comparison. Uh, it, they're completely different projects. And when you think about the political project, you want to constrain people in power. When you think about the social project, you want to enable the people who are in power to make sure that the social project can you know, actually go through smoothly. That I think is the fundamental contradiction in the Indian constitution. That is why sometimes the Indian constitution is a roadmap and sometimes the Indian constitution is a constraint, right? If you look at article 100, article 189, article 368, these are procedural provisions. They are very much constraining behavior. They're telling us how you can formulate legislation or formulate constitutional amendments. On the other hand, you have all of your directive principles, right? You have every single fundamental right has like a non-obstante clause equivalent, right? Immediately, the moment you have the fundamental right, you have the, the conditions uh, under which it won't hold. Uh, so it's both, right? And that's, that's the real inherent contradiction. And you know, there are also a lot of compromise, right? I mean, there's a lot of compromise even in the American constitution, the way it's being stitched together. 
but the compromises in the Indian constitution are quite clear. Like, you know, why do you need directive principles to be in the constitution when they are unenforceable? Right? Why do you need, I mean, it's such a bizarre thing. You can understand having a preamble to the constitution that is not enforceable, but has value, you know, as a guiding document or vision statement. Why do you need, you know, whatever, 20 provisions in directive principles, uh, which the framers say these are not enforceable, but we want the states to do this. It's a very bizarre thing to have. We borrowed this from the Irish, right? It's a very Fabian uh, way of doing things. Uh, the idea is that if it is in the constitution, then the fundamental rights will be interpreted differently. They will accommodate all these other things that we wish to do because they knew these contradictions are inherent. But there are some very strange things that have come about as, as a product. You know, you have so many Fabians in the room, you can't not have positive entitlements. Positive entitlements cannot be made enforceable. <laughs> so now what do you do? You have, you know, part four of the constitution. So this is the sort of thing. Um, so I, I think you're right in that it's sometimes a roadmap and sometimes a constraint. And it's because of the, the historical moment and the ideas, but I think it's also the people and it's the, the cultural context in which it is being written. You know, today's cultural context, you might get a slightly different document. The Indian constitution is also the only one which gives universal adult franchise the moment it launches. That is an extraordinary thing for any constitution of that time. I don't think until then any constitution had done that, right? And I mean, there are some serious logistical problems with this, right? I mean, you have most of the, most Indians are illiterate, right? When you start looking at this, like, you know, you literally have this question of what are we putting on the voting document? I mean, is it is it words, letters, symbols? How are they going to sign? Like, what is going, I mean, how do we basically do this logistically, the whole story, right? Uh, but also more fundamentally, most people thought this is the worst idea in the world because well, how can people who are illiterate, you know, be allowed to vote or shouldn't you have a test? Shouldn't you have some minimum requirements? But that would also exclude most of the Indian population. So that is another major difference because your constitutional politics, the moment your you know, republic comes into being is very different from the constitutional politics in the United States and other places where you, know, you have a, a good hundred years before you extend franchise to, to people beyond and a good 200 years you know, before you get universal adult franchise or anything that comes close to it. So I think that's another important element. I completely agree that there were important cultural and social differences between the backdrops in which both these constitutions came about. But, and this is on a side note, I think there's always been a problem in the political discourse in India of lack of ideological diversity. So all our constitutional makers were by and large statists, whether on the left or on the right. And you see that ideological diversity is still lacking in the way that our courts interpret the constitution. So say article 21. Now, They've given Article 21 very creative interpretations, but all these interpretations are broadly of a particular kind. So the courts have held the right to health as a facet of right to life, right to clean air as a facet of right to life, and so on and so forth. All positive rights casting positive duties in the state. There's no alternative imagination. You know, on the question of ideological diversity, I think 
I mean, the U.S. Constitution is not exactly being written by an ideologically diverse group of people, right? It's a very, very homogenous group in that sense. They have differences. You have the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, and you know you have all that going on. But ideologically, if you look at it from today's lens, they're all very similar, right? In fact, that's the that's the critical theory interpretation of the U.S. Constitution and its critique of the U.S. Constitution that's written by this homogenous set of white men. I don't think ideological homogeneity in itself is a problem. I think there are two other things going on. Uh, one is you have an ideological position or an ideological commitment which is not compatible with the written text of the Constitution. I think that is one problem. You know, you've borrowed all these great liberal ideas and constraints from other polities when you're in your constitutional you know, framing moment. Uh, but you don't really have a commitment simply to those ideas which you put in the text. You have a commitment to a much broader set of ideas. And when push comes to shove, you're willing to compromise what's in the text. Right? That's kind of my you know, incompatible institutions thing. Right? You have this liberal document and you have you know, a socialist commitment. That's one. I think what's happening with Article 21 is not just a question of ideology. I think the judges don't know what the hell they're doing. I think that's it. You know, uh, if there was some ideological consistency there, I would be thrilled with it. You know, the way I analyze in the first 44 amendments, you have this great ideological consistency in the kinds of, you know, policies that ran afoul with the constitution and then you had to push and pull and amend the constitution. I simply don't see that. What is the ideological consistency between my right to architectural heritage and my right to clean air, right? And my right to due process. I don't know any ideological position uh, which draws a clean line in, in a commitment to all. I mean, the only ideological position is these sound like good things to have, <laughs> you know? And the judges are literally writing law based on this sounds like a good idea okay i don't want to put any greater intellectual veneer on this i mean the whole enterprise is just a sham right now and it has been for 20 plus years article 21 today it is easier for me to claim my right to architectural heritage under article 21 and shut down commercial establishment in Hoskas village or Shapurjat, right, as historical areas, then it is to claim my right to a speedy trial. Okay. This is not an ideological problem. This is, you don't know what your job is <laughs> as, as a judge. That's just simply it. There is no guiding principle uh, which unifies this kind of public interest litigation. Most of this Article 21 jurisprudence you're talking about is not even reasoned judgments. They are four paragraph orders. Clear this slum, stop that restaurant from operating, open up this art architectural monument, you know, close down that factory because clean air or make sure that the government makes this hospital give you free medical services, the whole thing is bananas, right? Uh, 
I would really encourage young scholars to find some unifying theme in all this. If they could, I would be very grateful. I have not found it, personally. Also, I mean, this is a question to you as a law student. What do you think is the prevailing dominant ideology in the Supreme Court today? Is there one? Well, as of today, maybe none. But even generally, now that I think, perhaps the only common theme running across uh, these kinds of judgments is that judges really don't know where to stop. And I think Indian judges have a fundamental lack of clarity about their role in a constitutional polity. And they have been, particularly post-1980, unable to figure that out. I agree with you completely. Right. Okay, But it's not like they are more on the right in the traditional sense that they are more market-friendly. I mean, the kinds of judgments and everything from your you know, retroactive taxation to cancelling of licenses, these are not very right-wing policies, right? They're all just like arbitrary and they are foolish and they have terrible consequences. They are not very left-wing friendly either, right? Uh, I mean, the way you used to have, say, in the heyday, like Krishna Iyer or someone who had very, very specific, like, you know, he was expanding labor rights. You could very, very clearly see, or he's expanding positive entitlements. Um, you don't see that. So they're not very left-friendly either. Uh, they are certainly not liberal in the, in the classical liberal sense of the word because you can't get a habeas corpus hearing. I mean, the whole thing is crazy, right? Uh, one of my colleagues uh, and co-author Shreyas Narla and I are tracking the habeas corpus uh, you know, petitions which are pending in you know, the Jammu and Kashmir since your Article 370 uh, you know, situation. No one is showing any kind of haste in listening to habeas corpus petitions, right? So you're not really liberal either in the sense that you know, individual rights and need to be protected from a coercive state. I see no pattern. Uh, the other reason I see no pattern is no judge is hanging around in the Supreme Court long enough to form a pattern. I mean, their tenure is so short and so fleeting. The way you could, you know, you would think about the, you know, the Bhagwati court or, you know, the Shastri court or something like that. You just don't have that anymore, right? Uh, you don't have them there for long enough time. So I don't think it's ideological. I think there is something very fundamentally, I mean, there are a few things you are absolutely right. Uh, I hope you're allowed to say this, uh, given that you're a law student and one day you need to do judicial clerkships and you know, you're gonna have judges come and lecture you and things like that. But you're absolutely right in that they've lost all sense of purpose. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what their role is in, in a constitutional polity. I think it's bad incentives. There's a lot of ad hoc decision making because you know you have your post-retirement benefits and things like that, which suddenly start looking like they're favoring the government right now. It's a right-wing nationalist government, so they seem right-wing when it used to be a left-wing government. They seem left-wing, whatever it is. So there's some of that going on. And I think the judicial appointments process has completely corrupted the court. There is no uh, sensible way by which we are appointing. It's a completely corrupt and nepotistic system. There's no other way to say it. We all like to complain about how all our politics is, you know, corrupt. But are we really expecting 
a bunch of judges who have risen to the top through a very corrupt, nepotistic and opaque system to now shed transparency and accountability on electoral bonds? Really? This is what we're expecting? And then we are constantly complaining that these judges are not holding those in power accountable to, to a democratic polity. It's simply not going to happen. I mean, look at how they were chosen, right? They were chosen by the same broken, corrupt process, you know, uh, which is trying to increase, you know, the opacity in political decision making that the electoral bonds are doing. So expecting one to fix the other is a pipe dream. So I think those kinds of, you know, those are the problems. I think they're all structural. I don't think they're ideological. Uh, and some of these structural problems always persisted, uh, except in the very early part of the Republic. Uh, but I, I wish they had an ideology, to be honest, because then one could analyze it, one could counter it, one could go to court and present evidence, you know, saying that, hey, this is your ideological vision but these policies don't exactly translate that vision well. Like, you know, if you have a progressive policy, like say rent control, right? Then you can take evidence and present it before the court that yes, you have this progressive ideology. This is the progressive policy that you're peddling, but what you're getting is not the intended outcome. You have all these unintended consequences. And I think you need to relook at your, uh, you know, the gap between your ideological vision and the kind of policies that you're upholding. I wish we had, an ideological schema to these things. I just don't see it. I have a related question uh, in this regard. Uh, do you have any suggestions as to how does this vicious cycle of institutional breakdown can uh, somehow end? Because it's quite clear that it's stemming from a bad constitutional design, right? I do think, you know, 124, right? Your, your provisions, which are really talking about appointments uh, to the judiciary, they can be specifically amended and clarified, right? The NJAC was an attempt to do that. It was a bad attempt because it was flawed, but that's not why it was struck down. It was struck down because the judges wanted to, you know, kind of hold on to their power and their very opaque system. Uh, but we need something like the NJAC, not exactly what was put forth, but you do need a broader committee which is more diverse and more transparent to appoint judges in India. There is no question about it. So the idea that the Indian judiciary should be self-appointing and as opaque in its self-appointing process as it is, it's a recipe for disaster. We're already paying the price. Now, the question we must ask ourselves is, what is a stable coalition or committee which is going to give us good quality judges? That is really the question to ask, right? Is it going to be a committee which is full of ex-judges, right? Former judges? I don't think that's a good idea. Is it a committee which is full of uh, uh, politicians currently in power from government? No, I don't think that's a good idea because they are also the biggest litigants in court with the most skin in the game. So that's a terrible idea. Should it be members of opposition alone? No, because you're going to hold things up. Uh, should it be some kind of group which cuts across all these different people? Probably. Right? So it should be people who are members from Lok Sabha, from opposition, a couple of members who are eminent from Rajya Sabha, 
right? You should have certainly have your law minister, right, in, in place. You need someone from cabinet to, to represent because they should be the ones making the appointments uh, or at least have a hand in making the appointments, though not complete control. You need some current and some former judges. So I think what we need to come up with is a new NJAC, which comes up with a stable coalition that is going to give us high quality people. I think that's what's required. I don't think it is a tall ask uh, that you can get, you know, a couple of high-minded people from opposition, you know, a couple of, and I think, look, people are going to say, if you have too many people from government and opposition and judges, they'll all work with each other. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> that's exactly how we should be doing politics in this country. People should bring their separate interests to the table and make and find a way by which you can balance those interests. Why do we need people from opposition? Because one day they might form government, right? And then you won't get this electoral bond kind of nonsense, right? Because electoral bond hugely compromises opposition interests, you know, in favor of ruling party interests, right? So you need people from all these diverse groups, right? So diversity is not just diversity of identity. It's not just one woman, one Dalit, one Adivasi, you know, one minority religion, that's identity politics. You've fallen in the same trap. Yes, you need some kind of diverse, you know, identification, but you also need diversity of interests. Some people who are going to think very short term, right? Who are typically your government, you know, appointees to this kind of committee. Some people who think longer term, like your opposition. Some people who think very, very, very long term, like, you know, maybe retired judges or something like that, right? Some who are imminent, you know, sort of wild cards, your imminent persons, right? They're always a wild card. Some of them are going to be good. Some of them are going to be bad. Um, so I think we need a better coalition, basically, right? We need a better way to do this. So no question that we need judicial reform. It's just who does it? I think the, the NJAC was almost too easy to strike down uh, because it was too heavy on, you know, executive power. In, within the NJAC. So I think that needs to be accommodated, but saying that there'll be no executive role in judicial appointments, I think it's bananas. They are the democratically elected government of the day. Okay, if they are not supposed to be appointing judges, then who is? So yes, you need someone who is not part of the same democratic politics cycle because you need checks and balances against you know, elected democratic representatives, but you can't also completely cut them out. So I think that's the balance that needs to be found in the next reform. Right now, we have nothing. We are appointing judges by memoranda, which were you know, hatched in a backroom, compromised. Nobody knows where these rules came from, how they came about, why they exist, who we are choosing. There is zero transparency. I mean, the whole thing is appalling. There's no other. It's kind of shocking that this is the state of affairs. It's basically a judicial coup, what we've had. You know, if they did the same thing in parliament, we would call it a coup. We would call it an emergency or something. Now we are having the same thing in the judiciary. We are calling it, oh, judicial appointment by collegium. And there are some nice euphemism for it. But the judiciary has had a coup. And we can't oust it. <laughs> That's basically what's happened. I think I've taken a lot of your time, right? Uh, so I have a last question for you, which is uh, now one of your uh, areas of research or one of your interests has been to look at how 
far constitutions drift from their point of origin. You know, Richard Epstein makes the point that the American constitution was a classical liberal constitution and judicial interpretation by progressives and conservatives alike made it into something that it was not originally envisaged. How far do you think the Indian constitution has drifted from its point of origin? Very far, very, very far. Let's walk through some examples. You know, uh, something that's not discussed that often, which is, let's say, you know, your 52nd Amendment, your anti-defection laws, right? Uh, this has completely subverted parliamentary process in India, right? So what they're basically saying is that now parliamentarians need, cannot just vote their conscience, they need to vote their party whip. And if they don't vote their party whip, then they can be held uh, liable by the Speaker of the House. They can even be disqualified from the House. Right? This is extraordinary. I, this cannot be farther removed from the original vision of the Constituent Assembly. Right? Uh, I don't see how this has been upheld, why this did not you know, get the hammer of uh, your basic structure, you know, your Keshvanan Bharti basic structure doctrine. There is no reason this kind of amendment has a place in any constitutional politics, and it's very far removed from the original vision. Uh, I think your reservations and affirmative action has drifted very far from the original vision, right? Now, there are two, three ways of slicing and dicing this. You know, one is, uh, you know, the right wing conservatives always like to say, oh, Ambedkar only wanted reservation for 10 years and then he wanted it to be eclipsed, right? That's the eclipse sunset clause in the constitution. Uh, so one way of thinking about it is very reductive way in my opinion. That's not what I mean by, by drift. I mean the original purpose of protected classes was historical oppression, right? And that is why the Dalits and Adivasis are included in that category you get a big break in the Mandal moment, right? This is your post-1990-91 politics. And the big break is now we are also going to include people who we no doubt agree are disenfranchised in some shape or form, you know? I mean, if you look at the caste system, it's really the upper caste and the Brahmin, Kshatriya, Banya groups who have, you know, positions of power. So there is no question that the OBCs were disenfranchised, but were they historically oppressed in the same way as, you know, uh, Dalits and Adivasis, which was envisaged in the original constitutional framing, or were they also in fact the oppressors, you know, in large part, right? So this is something we have never really, you know, deeply debated and discussed more broadly as a society, uh, why do we need affirmative action? Is it an antidote to poverty? Is it an antidote to unemployment? Is it an antidote to historical oppression and disenfranchisement? That I think we never resolved as a society. And you see that in your constitutional politics, right? So now you've snuck in another very large group, economically weaker sections. Right? This is your 103rd Amendment, right? Uh, now we are no longer thinking of historical oppression as the, as the deciding factor. Now this is literally saying this is a poverty and jobs and welfare program, right? 
so anyone even from upper caste from any groups are now entitled to this if you look at some of the the cut off points in this amendment 85% of indians fall within you know the land and income cut off point so now this is really i mean this is not what the original ambedkarite vision was we have come very far from it so i'm not even going into the debate of should india have reservations or not i'm not talking about that i'm saying the original framers placed reservations given a particular cultural context we have drifted very far from it with no debate or discussion as a society that's another i mean if you look at your fundamental rights i mean there's no question right i'm not just talking about your right to property being deleted and things like that article 21 has nothing to do with the original article 21 it's no longer a due process clause we have no due process uh writ remedies are not what they used to be right i mean you're basically just using a continuing mandamus provision uh you know as a pil tool right but your other writs have been completely compromised habeas corpus which is the uh, you know sort of cornerstone of civilized society has been completely broken so these are not formal amendments but we simply don't pay any heed to these these writs anymore right so that's another huge drift uh, which has happened by judicial interpretation uh, i would say i think also your uh, you know your original framers they were very very clear that directive principles were not enforceable and fundamental rights were the enforceable portion of the constitution and should there be a conflict between the two the fundamental rights would trump right and your first you know decade and a half two decades that's the dominant judicial view also right in case there is a conflict between fundamental rights and directive principles fundamental rights need to win now that starts changing in judicial interpretation in later years also you have 31c which is still part of the constitution which is shocking to me right i mean it completely cuts the legs of your fundamental rights in in one stroke and um i think you know the 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 supreme court in the 80s did not do the right thing i mean it was a these are terrible opinions so technically 31c should have been completely struck down post keshavanand bharti saying it you know compromises the basic structure of the constitution right uh and assuming fundamental rights are part of the basic structure but now they have a caste system even within the fundamental rights right 14 19 21 get some special status and all others don't get some special status so now you have some like highly like messy situation i don't even know what it is exactly frankly it's very confusing i don't think anyone knows i believe if you have constitutional amendments which further directive principles which violate 14 19 21 they can be struck down under the basic structure doctrine but if they violate other fundamental rights then they may not be struck right this is kind of the position now what that means precisely nobody knows right and uh, everything passes now right that's why a jobs program and a welfare entitlements program like you know amendment 103rd amendment can now mask itself as a reservation and an affirmative action program so we have i mean the kind of drift we've had in the constitution is frankly shocking the biggest drift is of course how we appoint the judiciary i the the you read 124 and you see how they are making appointments and you will think not just that you're in different countries but on different planets 
there is, I mean, they've taken one word which is in consultation and just run with it and created a completely separate procedural document which is not in the text of the constitution. Uh, it's frightening that we're able to do things like this. So I think that has been probably the biggest drift, you know, other than what's happened with fundamental rights. I think what is happening with citizenship right now uh, and what is forthcoming, I mean, the, the nightmare that awaits us post-pandemic, if they decide to go through with, you know, the CA-NRC combination, uh, that is going to completely overturn the, the framers' vision of what it means to be Indian and who qualifies to be Indian, and that it will not be based on uh, ethnicity and religion, but it'll be based on birth, right? So that's, that's going to be another huge trip. So these, I mean, these are the ones I have identified in five minutes. Uh, we could have another like you know year-long seminar on this but the constitutional drift is enormous and we need to fix it and everyone is to blame parliament you know the original framers the judges who've done this by interpretation as a society that we have allowed it i mean all of it it's it's a complete mess thank you so much Shruti, for being so generous with your time I look forward to reading more of your work and continuing this conversation. It was delightful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Parv. This was such a pleasure. I, I, I'm afraid each, each answer was long-winded, uh, uh, but uh, you asked really broad and questions that made me think. Uh, so I hope this most of this is usable. Indeed. Thank you very much, Shruti.